0: Hello and welcome to the Centuries of Sound radio podcast. This one's from November 2018, features Sean, and covers the years 1890 and 1891. Centuries of Sound is a monthly mix of original music and sounds from a year in history. Right now we're up to 1927. To download full mixes and get a host of other benefits for just $5 a month, please come to patreon.com slash centuries of sound.
1: I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, Edison's phonograph. So that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority.
0: The voice of P. T. Barnum there welcoming us to another episode of Centuries of Sound. P. T. Barnum. Was a famous showman. He had various performing shows around the uh, USA and other countries, and uh, he's still a well known name today, I believe. Yeah, famously money
2: obsessed. He came up with the or supposedly came up with the phrase, "as a sucker born every minute. Fabulously focused on making money. The circus that he founded folded only two years ago, one year ago, in 2017. Mm. So,
0: long standing American icon. And uh, with the film, based on his life and his works, is uh, doing very well now. There's a musical. Is that uh, P.T. Barnett? Oh. The Greatest Showman, ah. whatever He did popularise the concept of the freak show, which has not been viewed particularly nice historically. I suppose it was work for people with disabilities at the time when they couldn't get any. Uh, degrading, humiliating work. So one of many morally ambiguous things that we need to cover today I'm afraid. (laughs) In this show we go back to a year in the history of recorded sound and this is really far back we're going right now. What year was that recorded in do you think Sean? I think it was 1890. It was 1890 indeed. 1890 and 1891 we're covering today because uh, there's not really that much good recorded sound from 1890 and 1891. My name is James I'm the creator of the Centuries of Sound website and uh, Sean is my co-host here, my historical expert, who will be filling us in on some of the events that are happening in these two years. So let's uh, let's talk, first of all, about the year 1890. Sean, well, what can you tell us about the year 1890? Well, the year 1890 was still
2: under Queen Victoria at this point. Uh, I still believe the Earl of Salisbury is um, Prime Minister, but winding towards the very late Victorian period and really was seeing... It's a time of recession. The uh, Victorians later like refer to this period as the Great Depression. It's when we see working men's groups appearing. The Trade Union Congress now has one and a half million members. By 1891, um, one and a half million members of cooperatives. We learn from Charles Booth that um, over 30% of London's working class people lived in poverty. We're moving more towards that traditional view you have of the Victorian era of big cities with belching factories and all the rest of it. There's huge wealth, but there's also huge poverty. And actually, that comes out in the political system. Uh, There's a great deal more radicalism. The growth of the Independent Labour Party is soon to Mm. emerge. Britain is moving from that self-confident 1880s towards a more questioning role of itself. It's questioning itself a lot more. Germany and the the United States have overtaken England's industrial output and all the rest of it. So Britain's becoming a little less sure of itself Mm. in these years. We're heading more towards the classic... 1900s, 1910s, Great War era.
0: Yeah, so it's a, a time of change in Britain. Yes. Um, we're not going to be going to Britain quite so much this time. We yes. do have a, a few things from Britain later on. We're going to go to America, first of all, Yes. where they are... In the middle of the Gilded Age, yes, and uh, it's one of those times where some people are making a lot of money, and uh, some other people are in terrible poverty. Mm-hmm. Culturally speaking, we have uh, quite a lot of different styles of music that mm. are popular. The most popular music of all, though, we would call it maybe marching band music mm. these days. If you go to one of these small towns, they have uh, their local town band will uh, have the the latest music. It wouldn't be the sort of music you'd expect it. Uh, if you went to see an orchestra play. They obviously have less members than an orchestra and they can't play quite such sophisticated music as an orchestra. Mm. It's a simpler kind of music, but if you compare it to the more genteel classical music, it's almost uh, like the, the rock version. It's uh, got uh, that kind of driving beat. It gets people up and excited. Mm. And uh, the, the grand leader of all this is uh, John Philip Sousa. Are you familiar at all with the works of John Philip Sousa? I've heard his name before, but I couldn't tell you much of him apart from that. John Philip Sousa was the leader of the United States Marine Band, and uh, in that role, he uh, wrote many of the kind of marches and military songs that you may have heard in many different places. One of the famous ones is the Monty Python theme tune, Oh, really? if you're familiar Mm. with that. And uh, for these early years, we have Sousa's band recording quite a lot. They're uh, one of the most popular recording artists of the day, but not John Philip Sousa himself. He was very suspicious of recorded music. He called it canned music and he refused to participate in it in any way. So Uh, this is like Britney Spears' backing act without Britney Spears? In a sense, in a sense, but he did have many of the best musicians coming through the ranks, so we'll, we'll get into those in later years perhaps let's have uh, one of the first recordings of Sousa's band you might find this a familiar song this is the washington post march do you make of uh, Sousa's band? Well, it's all rather rousing, isn't it? It um, is very rousing indeed. Yeah. This,
2: so this would have been what the
0: average working man would have, um, would have listened to, or is this
2: more of a middle class?
0: Uh, it depends where you go. Mm. I think this is uh, going to the small towns around America. Mm. This is what they would listen to. Um, if you're in the big cities, I think they have their other kinds of performances. We'll be getting into some of those mm. a little later. But as far as uh, John Philip Sousa... And uh, some, some other band leaders will be hearing mm. go. This is a, yeah maybe the most mainstream music of the time that you're getting recorded. Um, it's interesting to see with these recordings, uh, these this kind of band music, later on we'll see them. Surprisingly enough, they're going to be the first people to adopt uh, ragtime. Mm. They'll start to have kind of ragtime elements to them. And uh, we'll have uh, other bands which uh, will start to appear, which are full-on ragtime bands, but they still kind of draw on that military band tradition. And those would become the first jazz bands. So oh. it's, it's strange, strangely enough, you wouldn't think this sounds like it's going to turn into jazz, but you could do a mix of going through from this all the way through to jazz.
2: And would you have, in the United States, would you have white and African-American
0: members? But, uh, Certainly not in the South, obviously, but... Of the same band, certainly not. Oh. Even into the jazz age, it didn't really happen until almost 1930. Mm. And yeah, into the 1930s. Somebody like Spider Spiderbeck, the first great white jazz performer, mm. ne- did never played in a band with the other great jazz performers of the age just because he was in white bands, which is really a shame because he was way too good for those. Yes. And uh, he did play with Louis Armstrong privately, but it was never recorded. It's what really a been? shame. So let's go back to England for a little bit. We Mm -hmm. do still have some recordings from England from the year 1890. Last time we were talking about a guy called General Gourode. General Gouraud was Thomas Edison's agent in the UK and he made a lot of recordings of uh, famous people in the UK. Coming into 1890, General Gouraud is still in the UK, still making recordings. He's been given a project to do, though. He has to raise money for uh, the relief fund for uh, veterans of the light brigade
2: ah yes Uh,
0: the light brigade of course are most famous for the charge of the light brigade Yep. um the charge of the light brigade was not in 1890 when was the charge of the light brigade charge of the light brigade is part of the crimean war in the 18
2: in 1854 so Mm -hmm. this is about 26 27 years
0: The Charge of the Light Brigade, I guess people will be vaguely aware of what that is. Can you give us a bit more detail? What's Uh, the context of that?
2: So, effectively, the Charge of the Light Brigade is one of those seemingly British-only moments when we celebrate a uh, terrific loss. Um, Effectively, Lord Cardigan's light cavalry are ordered to charge a retreating gun position but they get the wrong end of the stick, either deliberately or through verbal miscommunication. We're not quite sure which. And they charge against a heavily fortified position, and they are all slaughtered. Oh. Um, they actually manage to reap the cannons, but then have to turn round and run back run back again. So it's a complete national disaster, but in quite the same way as Dunkirk. Uh, Lord Cardigan becomes a celebrity, and it's kind of become one of those great icons of British manhood, as it were, you know, oh. duty and all the rest of it. Okay. Um, so it's probably analogous to us raising money for veterans of i don't know what would it be now vietnam or something like that okay I suppose somewhat understandable especially as in this put, there is very little in the well of a welfare state there's certainly no real uh national health service or even effective pension really so if you were disabled
0: hmm. in the chartered light brigade fortunately you would be for life with very little assistance aside from begging hmm. So this is, uh, in order to raise money for them, we have, first of all, some, uh, a speech from somebody else who became famous in the Crimean War. That's Florence Nightingale. Yes. Um, we've heard the voice of quite a few famous people so far, but Florence Nightingale is the first one to understand how to really use her voice on record. Should we just hear what Florence Nightingale yes, sounds like? Yes, let's. <laughs>
3: And tonight when I am no
4: longer even a memory, shocked and vain, I hope my voice may perpetuate the great
3: work of my life. God my
5: dear old
4: family.
2: And they're still doing that uh, weaving at the end where they say their name,
0: yeah, that's still going on, they still have to say their name. It is odd, yeah. it's a the signature audio mm. signature. Mm. So what do you think of Florence Nightingale's voice there? It she sounds exactly like I thought she would do, which is kind of pleasing yeah. in, in a sense. She is quite posh, obviously. Yes, she is. And um, uh, stern and matriarchal. Yes. Um, interesting what she's saying though, saying that I hope mm. in many years people will still will be able to hear my voice and mm. remember my deeds. And that's exactly what happened.
2: But that's that's interesting because I remember before, we were saying that these this kind of recording cylinder was used more almost as an aid memoir. Um, you know, if we'll send a message, then we'll get rid of it. There seems to be a shift now. People are thinking this will be preserved. Hmm. And centuries later, people will be listening. She's quite so insightful. It's... Yes, that in was math. quite an interesting
0: hmm. thing to hear. So she's a, one of the great Victorians, Florence Nightingale. Hmm. She is. She invented the pie chart. Yes. Not, not the pie chart, but some kind of pie chart, I yes. believe. Yes, yes, yes. And... Um... She didn't start modern nursing. No. uh, She is still the patron of the International Nursing College or something, I believe. She is. I
2: mean, controversially now, because, of course, we're recognising the great impacts. People like Mary Seacole, who, Mm. of course, was a working class woman of colour, had. um, that People liked to forget Mm -hmm. she wasn't an upper class woman. But obviously, Florence Nightingale is still a seminal figure. And mm. her work on statistics, as well as her work on nursing, is
0: quite impressive. I think when we're listening to these things, you kind of have to remember you're looking at a perspective of the time, mm. what they thought was important to preserve. Mm. So quite often it's not the same kind of thing that you want to preserve. Absolutely not. Another famous thing from the Charge of the Light Brigade. This is uh, the trumpeter, the original trumpeter, trumpeter Landfree playing the the bugle call that he played on that fateful day. Something a little strange in what he says. See if you can pick that out. <laughs>
5: mm-hmm. I am trumpeter Lanfrid, one of the surviving trumpeters in charge of the Light Brigade at Balaclava. I am now going to sound the bugle that was sounded at Waterloo and sound the charge that was sounded at Balaclava on that very same bugle
0: okay there we go that's the that's the bugle charge that sent the light brigade out and apparently also the one they used at waterloo which is I don't know if it was the same bugle at Waterloo or not. No, and I, I, I maybe that's what he meant—that it was going to be the same bugle they used both times. I—I f- I got out of it that I thought he
2: was—he co- used the same call yeah. as they used at the Waterloo, which is interesting in of itself. that's seventy years later,
0: mm. um, I guess I he'd know. be getting on a bit at this yeah. time. Maybe he just forgot what he was doing. Yeah. There's no retakes at this time, so
2: no. Though they are fascinated with Waterloo in the Victorian period, it's
0: entirely possible that they did use the same. One other famous cultural artifact, of course, that comes out of the Charge of the Light Brigade is uh, the poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Hmm. And uh, I'm I'm just going to play it now and see if uh, see if you recognise it. This is the man himself reading the poem in last years of his life. Let, let's hear Alfred Lord Tennyson uh, reading his poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Absolutely. So, sorry to interrupt Alfred Lord Tennyson a bit there. It's a bit of a shame. But let's uh, let's discuss as he reads his poem. There are many famous lines there, the, the cannon yes. to the rest of them. There we go, we missed the famous line. Um, canon to the left of them, cannon to the right of them, into the valley of death. Um, what can you tell us about Alfred Lord Tennyson?
2: Well, Tennyson, of course, was poet laureate for most of Victoria's reign from the first official. Poets England and so they ever had. Uh, he's an interesting character because people think of him as a kind of a poet of jingoism and imperialism. And in many senses he was, but he was also a Whig.
0: A Whig would be uh,
2: a, Whig. a liberal. Yes, well, Yeah, not part. quite that they became part of the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. He's uh, so fairly radical for his day, but he became more depressed about the state of Britain as his life went on. He wrote in, I believe it was 1835, a poem called, the, called Loxley Hall. Um, which was a great triumphant view of uh, English society and how it was evolving and how progress was on the march, very much a Whig perspective. But in 1886, he writes uh, "Loxley Hall, 60 years on. His maths was a bit off. And effectively, when he said, "Now England and Britain is this threatened democracy threatened by popularism and unenlightened working people who've been given the vote, and now they're going to be really? voting in <laughs> demagogue politicians and all the rest of it, so he he again we get this sense from Lord Tennyson of the shifting of the optimism, the Whiggish optimism mm. the eighteen thirties is shifting now. he became a very cynical figure
0: well I was, I was trying to place what his voice sounded like as we were listening yeah. to it a little there. And um, it reminds me of an interview of with um, Enoch Powell, I remember, yes. from the 1990s. His voice sounds just the same. Kind of a little bit confused. The kind of voice that you just don't... I, I don't think you get that anymore. I think that generation is, is gone now. No,
2: you've got um, Jacob <laughs> Rees-Mogg. He's probably yeah. the only person who sounds like that now.
0: Yeah, but he's special, of course. Let's uh, move away from England now. Mm. Let's, uh, let's travel across the English Channel and then across the continent to Russia. Ah, um, yes, Russia. Yeah, how's, how's Russia doing? Russia is Russia's an interesting mix. It has
2: now freed the serfs. The serfs have been enfranchised the last European nation to do so. Good, good. Um, but it's still very much an autocracy. Uh, the state duma, when it is called, has very little power. The Tsar is still an absolutist ruler. And it is a world of difference away from... England you'd go to England and Russia you couldn't believe they're in the same time period but there is a great flowering of Russian music at this time it's bizarre there is Um, many famous composers it's true and there's many theories as to that some say well since all the power is focused in one place near the Tsar it means he can patronize all these great musicians or simply you know any number of reasons why Russia has this great flowering but yes but it's interesting that Tchaikovsky is most famous for his work on Counterpoint which of course is a counter-reformation, uh, harking back to the medieval periods, very complex, intertwined hmm. musics. So in many senses, you could argue Tchaikovsky is looking back to a period of history even in the 19th century that no longer exists.
0: Yeah, hmm. well, let's kind of go over there then. Yeah. We have uh, some quite impressive stuff from Russia. In 1890, of course, the technology to record is still very basic. Mm. We have these uh, cylinder machines that Edison's making and sending all over the world uh, with various people. <laughs> not all over the world to a few locations only Um, but he has a fan in Russia a Mr Julius Block he went over with an Edison recording machine and a stack of cylinders and started recording his friends and his friends were all the different members of this elite society at the time the famous composers and musicians and uh, he managed to record quite a lot of um, well preserved and unbelievable recordings at this time of uh, quite well-known people, uh, the first one I'd like to play is not that well-known. Um, it's Mademoiselle Nikita and Piotr Shuovsky playing at the fountain. The studio audience, they're very impressed with the performance, especially of Mademoiselle Nikita. Yes, well. I think an interesting thing to notice from this recording is that they were speaking in French at the beginning. Yes, Mm. I did notice that as well. And they were calling her Mademoiselle Nikita, because at this time, of course, I say of course, maybe people don't know this, that French was the international Mm. language, the lingua franca of the world. And if you were an educated Russian in society, you would speak French as much as possible. Um, it's kind of strange to think these days. But, well, yeah, uh, I mean, how it it,
2: went. it's in the same way now that if you go to China, all the educated elite, if you want to get anywhere, will speak
0: English. From my experience, yeah. not always. Not always, well. <laughs> not always. But it was the prestige language. Yes. And if you read all those uh, books by uh, Tolstoy or uh, they're all saying, Dostoyevsky, is Dostoyevsky early, yeah, but... Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. they're... Uh, always speaking in French. They always have nice little phrases in French through those books. It's kind of strange. The most famous composer of all of them in Russia this time, as we've already mentioned, was uh, Mr. Tchaikovsky. Yes. Uh, Pyotr Ily- Ilyich Tchaikovsky. I think there's a kind of cliché of, of Russians as mm. being kind of uh, masculine and, like, bear-like. Butch, yeah. Yeah, but uh, let's have a listen to Tchaikovsky yes, and see if he sounds like that. Um, or very kind of intellectual and old fashioned. Might be surprised. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That was not what you expected. Not what I was expecting at all. So uh, Tchaikovsky was gay. He was very flamboyant and extravagant in his kind of mannerisms and uh, quite ahead of his time in that sense. So, it might that, be a that's... bit of Mr Humphreys, I've got to be honest. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of playful. He's just larking around in front of a recording horn and that's what he sounded like. He didn't record Tchaikovsky playing any music, he recorded him larking around in front of the microphone. That, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember last
2: episode, all these great establishment British figures we found were all, A, slightly drunk, and B, trying to say all this, what well, I presume they thought was incredibly profound things. No. He's just messy. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a nice picture, to be honest, Tchaikovsky just, hmm. and, <laughs> having uh, some fun.
0: I'm afraid we don't have any Tchaikovsky to play you oh, today. Alas. <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately. Let's, let's go back over to America again. Yes. Um, I'd like to play you... Uh, An example of vocal groups. So, vocal groups were a big deal at this time. Not barbershop quartets. Barbershop quartets, I think, is, we'd say a little bit later on. Mm. Uh, This is the Consolidated Quartet, a less rock and roll name I would challenge you to make. And it's called My Old New Hampshire Home.
4: My Old New Hampshire Home. Sung by the Consolidated Quartet.
0: My name's James. And I'm Sean. And we're playing music from the years 18, 19, 18, 91. Mm. Let's come back to the UK once more. The most famous sound of all would be the chimes of Big Ben. Yes. Very familiar sound, but kind of eerie to hear it coming from so long ago.
3: Big Ben, Westminster, London. Strikings, half past 10, a quarter to 11, and 11 o'clock. July sixth and by Ferguson and Hope.
0: This is the news. Yes, that's what I was <laughs> you got to
2: do that, haven't the you? The Prime Minister today has announced.
0: <laughs> <It's> all... <laughs> right, there we go. That's the chimes of Big Ben. Sounds kind of, uh, I don't know, ominous mm. coming from so far away in history. The chimes of Big Ben, a good uh, 25 years before the start of the First World War. Let's go back across to the USA and uh, hear some more of the... Popular music they had at that time. This is the United States Marine Band with the Thunderer.
3: The Thunderer March, played by the United States Marine Band for the Columbia Photograph Company, Washington, D.C.
0: That was the US Marine Band again with the Thunderer March. Would you like to have a dance around the room to that?
2: Well, there's a theory that all history is cyclical, in which case at some point our chart-toppers will again be this. So I look forward to the day when Velvet or anything like that in Cambridge is uh, pumping out brass band music.
0: Is that the name of a popular nightclub that young people go to? Oh,
2: I think, no, it's vinyl even. It's vinyl, opened recently. Other okay. nightclubs are
0: available. Um, I'm not aware of any, so it's all right. <laughs> so, well, if you want to play that... <laughs> Um, We're going to stay in America now, um, even though it's German. We're going to play a German patriotic song. I think the German German patriotic song that we probably are aware of these days is the German national anthem, which currently has different lyrics to the ones that you might think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But at this point, the the famous German patriotic song, as anthems were not really codified at this stage, was uh, Die Wacht am Grein, The Watch or The Guard on the Rhine. So, have you heard of that song?
2: I have not heard of that song before. Um, Mm. But, of course, Germany has, obviously, at this point, unified. Mm. Uh, Bismarck has just been sacked this year, actually. Um, The great unifier of Germany uh, by Kaiser Wilhelm II. Um, Actually, Bismarck. Ironically, Queen Victoria's favourite nephew and was at her deathbed.
0: Mm. But one place that German patriotism is not controversial is in the USA, who will not have any conflict with Germany for a good 25 years. This is written based on a poem written by someone called Max Schneckenberger. I just think that's a good name to say. There's Max a- Schneckenberger. Let's hear the original German patriotic song called Die Wacht am Rhein. Die
3: Wacht am Rhein, gesungen von Karl Bernhardt, the company Columbia. Auf die Daterhals, die schlägt und wohlgestalt. Zum Reich, zum Reich, zum Reich, zum Reich. will so sein, lebt Vaterland,
0: Okay, so there's uh, the original German national song, Die Wacht am Rhein. Very patriotic and stirring.
2: Yes, well, it's interesting, of course, because there are a lot of German-Americans. Uh, this, but a lot of people mm. have uh, migrated to the United States in the latter half of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, this is a big problem come World War One, obviously, because there are a lot of Americans who feel closer to Germany than they do to England, especially in the Middle States in Ohio, mm. uh, New Hampshire, places like that. So it's... It's interesting, though, that there is a enough of a market for this,
0: that people are recording Yeah, I mean, the, the, German patriotic songs in America. I think the thing at this point is you're trying to appeal to markets. So mm. it's like, oh, there are German-Americans. Let's get somebody to record the German national anthem. Mm. And then the Germans will buy that. And it quite likely worked. Another thing that worked was uh, recording the most famous actor of his day, it was is Mr. Edwin Booth. What can you tell us about this very famous actor, Edwin Booth?
2: Well, Thomas Edwin Booth is widely considered the finest American Shakespearean actor of the 19th century. Uh-huh. Uh, he has also got a brother yeah, who you may have heard of called John Wilkes Booth, who yeah. shot President Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Um, what were the reviews of that? Well, well, not great. Not great, um, but it's interesting, isn't it? As you were saying earlier, it's like having... It's uh, like having Jack the Ripper's brother being a acting in Othello, this wouldn't happen in Great Britain. Um, but he doesn't seem to have hampered his career at all uh, and he mm-hmm. lived quite a happy life and he lived until 1893, so this is right at the end of his
0: career. Wow. so that's a uh, he's not, he wouldn't have been that old. No, he was uh... about 60, he was 60 when he died. Yeah, people didn't live so long in those no, days did they? quite a good innings actually for a man
2: of his generation.
0: Yeah, well let's, let's, let's have a listen to the famous Edwin Booth he's uh, doing a, a famous speech from Othello. That was Edwin Booth, the brother of the man who killed Abraham Lincoln, with a speech from Othello, because he was a famous actor. Yes, it, it, it's, it's terms of that. It's. Just,
2: give you the chills doesn't it, really this man knew the man who shot abraham lincoln and here mm. We are listening
0: it's, it's weird if you if sense. you have a look on uh youtube there's an american game show from the 50s and uh it's a you know they have to guess the interesting thing about the guest mm. and the interesting thing about the guest they have is that he witnessed the killing of abraham lincoln really yeah the guy's nearly 100 years old and he was a small child and he saw lincoln killed in the theater and yeah, you go and have a look at it. That's it's unbelievable, so bizarre. Okay, let's uh, have a listen to some popular music. Last time we heard a woman, Miss Shaw. She was a famous whistler. We have uh, some more artistic whistling now. If you listen to recordings from these years, artistic whistlers always perform the same song, and it's called "The Mockingbird."
5: Company of Washington, D.C., accompanied on the piano by Professor Geisberg. (laughs)
6: Thank <laughs> you.
0: So that's a tune called The Mockingbird, uh, John York Attlee. What did you make of that? Well, I was quite impressed that he can whistle so effectively, really. Um, yeah, he's good at whistling. I mean, that was his job. But uh, if that's your job, then you've got to do a good job of it. And yeah, I think it kind of comes out of bird impressions. He's going through his uh, collection of different bird impressions. And uh, that's one of the bird impressions that he, well, many of them, put together into a single song. There's a fair amount of whistling in jazz, isn't that?
2: Do they have anything to do with each other, or is that, is simply that... just a cultural? Well, I think it's Mr. Bojangles mainly. But uh... Uh,
0: okay, um, I don't think can't think of any other examples. Oh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think artistic whistling, as they referred to it, there was a big deal at this time. This is not quite the golden age of the minstrel show, but it's uh, it's in that kind of ballpark. We're getting towards the end of. Minstrel shows is a big deal. Mm. So minstrel shows date back to the 1830s uh, in the northeastern states of the USA. What you can say about the northeastern states of the USA is that they had uh, no slaves there. That was the places Mm. that didn't have slavery. So it was kind of a a taste of the South. Guy uh, Thomas Dartmouth-Rice, he had a very successful song called Jump Jim Crow. And that song was supposed to be uh, based on a cheerful black slave who he met in the south and he wrote a song about this guy and that turned into The Minstrel Show which was a it's obviously got a bad name these days because it's uh, white performers uh, making their face black Mm. with uh, burnt cork and performing horrible, distasteful caricatures of black people and that remains the case It's, it's still horrendous and racist and we can't make any excuses for it However, it was the standard performing mm. style of its time. And even when you get through to 1930s, as late as that, you still have an, an influence from, minstrel, uh, from the minstrel show mm. uh, in popular music. And it kind of uh, interacts in some ways with early jazz and uh, early country music. It comes from that kind of tradition. Mm. And even black performers would perform in blackface. They mm. would make their skin darker in that way. Very racist, but it was the main popular music form of its day. So we have Jim Crow as one of the songs, mm. Jump Jim Crow, and on the other hand we have another song called uh, I'm afraid this is the name Zip Coon. And the uh, cliche of these two characters, the um Jim Crow would be contented and uh, old and not very clever mm. and uh, the character of uh, zip coon would be dangerous and uh you have to you, you can't trust him and you have to watch out for him two racist caricatures that mm. carry way through into the 20th century Th- this song was also known as turkey in the straw and uh let's have a listen to turkey in the straw this is the big one of the big songs of its time and uh, it's a recording by a guy called billy golden a lot of these singers who are performing these kind of hideous caricatures of African-American men are obviously white, mm. uh, middle-aged uh, men who are performing artists as that's as their career. Mm. Some of them have uh, some positives we can give them as well. As far as Billy Golden goes, I'm not sure I have anything nice to say about him. I'm playing this purely as an example of the popular music of the time. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm not expecting anyone to appreciate this, but just as an example of the kind of endemic racism of the time, here we go. <laughs>
4: As I was a climb down the road, with a tired and a heavy load. I cracked my whip and a trunk, Your horse your I, I looked I didn't know how. I milked instead of the cow. A in the mother law about, turn about a, high, just call, a hoops, the call, and I the you turn about a, high, just call, a hoops, the call,
6: and
4: Yes, indeed. <laughs> I know that a nigger too love turkey, and I know that a nigger too love that sausage and chicken. Oh, hush, nigga, hush. Huh? To do, to be, to die. Ha, ha, ha. He came to try to do it. Well, look how cute that nigga some hawk children and that'll make him hoot. Ha, <laughs> ha, ha. But possum and gravy, ooh, run down. That possum's back will make a nigga when his lips pull him to slack. <laughs> I'll never go do down
0: so there's a uh, Billy Golden with Turkey in the Straw. Not, not, the most pleasant thing to no. hear, particularly. As far as the tune goes, I guess it held stuff together a little bit. Mm. It's, I think it's interesting though, isn't it? Because uh, when you think to
2: the fight against segregation in the 1960s, a lot of the people who would have been in Congress at the time would have grown up with this kind of song, and you can see mm. how this image of an African American as lazy and stupid and rather interested in food could. Affect your view, couldn't you? You could see, even if it's horrendously racist, but you can see how this image,
0: yeah, creates a very. When you when you're describing history, if you say the the USA had a problem with racism at this mm. time, I think in a in a very simple way you could go, oh, slavery is over, mm. so therefore exactly. it's all been sorted out. I mean, and it hasn't? And I mean. I think as let's let's go over the history of that a little bit shall not yeah. we um, so slavery was over of course yes. after the after the civil war, civil war. However, war the 13th Amendment.
2: however in the so effectively until the 1870s the union maintained military garrisons in the south to force um southern state governments to allow african americans to vote at the point of bayonet but of course in the 18 70s President Hayes pulled the troops out of the South actually to deal with striking workers in the North. And since then, southern state governments enact what's called Jim Crow laws, which are either implicitly or actually explicitly ban uh, former slaves from voting, from entering the same establishments as white, separate but equal oh. doctrine, etc. Et so actually, in many ways, the only thing that's changed for african-americans certainly in the south and to a lesser extent but still largely in the north is that they're no longer legally slaves but they have to work for less money they're not allowed to same establishments they're derided they can be beaten up if a black man is seen walking down the street with a white woman he will be hung mm. uh, he'll be burnt he'll be beaten so
0: this is the original yeah. time of the yeah. Klux
2: clan exactly mm. exactly but it's interesting again that the Ku Klux Klan becomes more prevalent in times of economic instability. America in the 1890s is doing quite well, but you also get the last flowering in the 1920s and 1960s when the South is not doing so well economically. So this is a potent mix of poor whites and who are not doing very well and incredibly racist uh, Southern governors who don't want the blacks to have the vote because they suspect they will vote in slightly more radical politicians and all the rest of it. So... Mm. It's not a good time to be an African-American in the United States, effectively even England, despite the legal abolition of slavery. As this mm. song shows, it's just horrific. Hmm.
0: Bearing all this in mind, mm. how would you feel if I told you that the most uh, popular, most successful musician of the 1890s was a black man? I would ask how much money he made, despite being the most successful. He didn't make very much money at all. Uh, he, was play- he was paid for his time. I mean, he got more money than he would have done otherwise. Yes, absolutely. And the man's name is George Washington Johnson, George W. Johnson. Uh, he was found on a street corner where he performed his two songs. And uh, we're going to hear one of, his, one of his two hit songs. Mm. Although he only had two songs, he would record them many, many times a day. He would sit at this time. The recording studio is, is a bank of cylinder phonographs. Mm. You've got a, a whole load, maybe 20 of those all set up put cylinders in, get them all ready and then press go together and then do it all over again. The reason is that you can't duplicate cylinders until Mm. much later. So that's what George W. Johnson does. He sits there every day, (laughs) uh, well, in many different sessions, singing this song over and over and over again. The song, I have to apologise again for the title, although to be fair, it was a title that George W. Johnson came up with himself Mm. And uh, so I'm afraid the the title of the song is The Whistling Coon. This is the biggest selling recording artist of the uh, 1890s, George W. Johnson. The original Mr. <laughs> George W. Johnson
5: will now sing The Whistling Coon at the Edison autograph work. I'm a very funny the line. I'm a of of you bird a We have There's a lady with a ring above the mountain, and the line of a loaf. Now, the old folk take a, a away from the and the way we're in the
0: George Washington Johnson there with one of his two big hits. I don't want to say the name again. Uh, what, what did you make of George Washington Johnson? It's quite jaunty, isn't it? And it's quite different from marching band yeah, music. Yeah, it, it's, it's not marching band. It's no. not sentimental ballads. You can see why it sold mm. so well. It's something different.
2: Yeah, it's something you can listen to and actually feel, despite as you say, despite the rather hideous name, something you could imagine listening to
0: and kind of... I think he was uh, very outdated even ten years later, he was mm. kind of seen as a historical no- anomaly mm. but it's it's the biggest selling artist of his of his decade and the if you imagine how people are listening to music it's it's not at home it's not in the office it's not in the street this is in um listening parlors, so mm. maybe in a train station they might have a listening parlor um so you've got nothing else to do you're in the train station you can come in and listen to um a cylinder, you get people to choose a cylinder for you and you have a thing that looks like a stethoscope. You put that in your ears and you can listen. Imagine you'd never heard recorded music before. It would seem like a wonder. It would be quite something. It would be quite something. Mm. But it's, it's a novelty. It's a, it's a novelty, as we say. It's not how we would uh, kind of understand music these days. Mm. Uh, what it reminds me of, um, when I was about 10 years old, I used to have a thing called a portable action replay player and key <sighs> ring um i've got a picture of one here it's a it's a kind of a small plastic box and it came with these little reels of film and each of the reels of film had kind of a 30 second clips and they'd be like an action clip from a blockbuster film or uh monster trucks or dirt bikes doing stunts or that kind of thing Mm. um have, have you seen that kind of thing before
2: yes i used to have one that would play star
0: wars Okay. I remember when Phantom Menace came out. So imagine that our civilization was destroyed and 150 years later you managed to dig a few of these out the ground. Uh, what would your impression be of our civilization? It would be...
2: Yes. Yeah. Interesting, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be a correct
0: one, but it that way. We're not really getting a proper picture of the music of the time because so little remains. And so unseriously was it taken as a way to preserve the music of the time. It was novelty. Um, let's have a listen to some more of the popular music, which is band music, marching band music. This is not Sousa's band, not the US Marine band. This is Hagar's band with uh, La Media Noche. It uh, alleges itself to be a Mexican song. I don't know if it really is Mexican. It does claim to be Mexican. It does sound basically like another marching band song. It does have a kind of slight Mexican tinge to it. See what you think.
4: The following Mexican dance entitled La Noche, is played by the United States Marine Band. Record taken for the Columbia Phonograph Company of Washington, D.C. Uh-huh.
0: So there's uh, Hagar's band with La Media Noche. Did you hear the Spanish tinge there? Um, no, but I don't know I'm supposed to be basing it off. Yeah. Um, I can vaguely imagine it after several listens, how you'd imagine that was uh, that kind of uh, Mexican mm. feeling. Uh, Mexican folk music will be very important later. We'll come into that 19, 1900s. Mm. Not not quite yet. Let's... Um, have a listen to a soloist. We've got the band, and so we've got the soloist. This is a soloist called D.B. Diner. He's playing Kujus Animum. you're listening to centuries of sound where we go on an audio time travel adventure to history we're now in the year 1891 and uh, let's have a listen to a famous name who died in 1891 it's not actually him it's his son recording his last words the guy's called ch spurgeon what well, can you tell us about C.H.
2: Spurgeon? C.H. Spurgeon is one of the greatest late Victorian preachers. Uh, he's often called the Prince of Preachers. He is a Baptist, very con- very conservative, firebrand uh, figure. Um, he's well known for his speeches, um, basically. He's known to be a very powerful speaker. Um, he was apparently meant to hold his audiences in spellbound admiration. And uh, he's a local boy, I
0: believe, as well. Uh, I did not know. Is he? Well, his his church is in Waterbeach, oh. which is just north of Cambridge, where we're recording now. So uh, yeah, yeah, a local Lo- boy. Local boy. It's a famous church in Waterbeach. Um, I'm sure there's some people listening in Waterbeach. You can go by his church. It's just the road to the station in Waterbeach. We don't actually have the voice of C. H. Spurgeon. We have the voice of his son, who's repeating his last words on his deathbed, which is a bit of a Grim thing to do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he's got an apparently very similar voice. That's what people said. So it is almost like hearing the last words of C.H. Spurgeon. So this is actually Thomas Spurgeon saying the last words of C.H. Spurgeon. For so the
3: truth of God is unhealthy. If you bear the livery of Christ, you will find him only. Two. And slowly apart, that you will find rest unto your soul. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always goes. The bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is greater, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish, and superabundance in love, you always find it in him. His service is life, peace, joy. All that you will enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus Christ.
0: The final words of C. H. Spurgeon there, being performed by his son Thomas Spurgeon in 1891, um, partly on a train, not not on. <laughs> it does sound like it's mm. on a train. The audio quality at this time obviously is not very good. Most of that though is down to the degradation in these uh, wax cylinders. Mm. This is being recorded on. Um, they're very susceptible to mold, and yeah, uh, if they're not kept in the proper dry storage place, they will degrade. Even if they're kept in the perfect kind of storage environment, playing them breaks them because it's not, not as uh, reliable as vinyl or shellac mm-hmm. for that matter. Um, it is a metallic soap, which as you can imagine, uh, the, Degrades. a needle will cut into that and uh, break it after hundred or so listens. That's mm-hmm. about as much as you can get out of it. Um, okay. So, we've had a listen to various music from the year 1890 and 1891. Um, all of it is not so new to me because I've been putting it together in one of my mixes and uh, if you want to hear all of my mixes going up to the year 1907 you can come along to centuriesofsound.com or if you want to Email me any uh, questions, comments, concerns or suggestions. Fan mail. Fan mail, hate mail. Not, not not hate mail. Don't send me hate mail. The address you need for that is centuriesofsoundmail at gmail.com. So that's one word, centuriesofsoundmail at gmail.com. We have accounts on Facebook and on Twitter. If you want to come and follow me on uh, Facebook or Twitter, you're welcome. Please don't follow me in real life, though. <laughs> um, so what do you make of the music of 1890 and 1891? We have actually heard some music this time. Yes, it's... The
2: sound quality's a lot clearer
0: from even a couple of years ago. They seem to be getting better That's it. Um, I think part of that is the choices I have. I think I've only used, let's say, one third of the available music this Mm. time, uh, which is down from about 100 percent last time or near 100 (laughs) percent. Yeah. Yeah, does sound a bit better. Still not recognisably, as a few things I can see as
2: recognisably modern. But then again, we are 110 years ago.
0: Yeah, we are. Um, A long time in the past now. So you've been listening to Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. I've been James. And I've been Sean. You can catch up with us on our website at centuriesofsound.com where we'll put up this show very soon. Uh, To play us out today, we have Sergei Taneyev, another recording made by Julius Bloch in Russia in 1891. He's going to play Mozart's Fantasy in C minor. Thank you for listening to the Centuries of Sound radio podcast. Centuries of Sound is a monthly mix of original music and sounds from a year in history. Right now we're up to 1927. To download full mixes and get a host of other benefits for just $5 a month, please come to patreon.com slash Centuries of